Greetings, my name is Griffin Schaefer. And my name is Scott Peterson. And this is episode 122 of Inside Quizzing. A podcast about Bible quizzing for folks who love the Bible. And in this episode 122, Scott and I are going to respond to an inbound uh, response email from a listener. We love getting listener emails. This one comes from Luke, who is a coach and official and former quizzer uh, from uh, CMD. And he writes a really awesome email. And we're just going to kind of dig into it because he, he says a lot of very smart things. And we want to it's great conversational starters to be able to share on the episode. Before we get into that, I do want to remind everybody that we very much love to hear from listeners and we love to hear your questions and comments and feedback. And we love especially to hear disagreement. Um, so if you have any of those things, uh, please email us at iq at cbqz.org. If you have a disagreement, you sort of get front of line privileges. But other than that, we really do want to hear from everybody. So it's, it's great to hear back uh, from folks. So with that, let's just kind of dive right into the letter. So we're, we've got it. We're going to kind of break up Luke's comments into a couple of different sections, actually four different sections. So I'll just read a section and then Scott and I will discuss and we'll just kind of iterate and see how the episode goes. All right. So Luke's first paragraph is as follows. The mission statement of Bible quizzing going forward, as you've repeated uh, endlessly, I'm adding the word endlessly here, should be to, quote, get as many quizzers as possible to memorize the most amount of verses, unquote. I wholeheartedly agree with this statement. If I could add anything to this, it would be to, quote, get as many quizzers as possible to memorize and live out the most amount of verses, unquote. Of course, this addition is already implied in the original statement. All right, Scott, what are your thoughts? Um, I think we've been fairly consistent about our thoughts on this is that this would be an ideal outcome, but you can't measure it. And especially not in the short term. And that fact makes it almost useless um, to include in a mission statement that is supposed to um, drive specific decisions when it comes to um, competition structure or material choices or um, any other decision that um, someone might have to make regarding Bible quizzing. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, objectively, well, actually, for, forget the objective word. Subjectively, I would really much love to have this addition in the uh, mission statement because I, I, certainly we all, it, the memorization is not actually the end goal, right? I think the end goal is actually to have the scripture be written on people's hearts and have that be illuminated by the Holy Spirit and that evoke a life change, right? To live out the most number of verses uh, in somebody's in somebody's life in, in deeds and actions and uh, the words and, and the, the whole of what that person is, right? Absolutely, we want all, all of that. Of course, when Scott says that's impossible to measure, he's right, but my objective nerd brain immediately wants to say challenge accepted. I, I desperately want to try to figure out a way to objectively measure, measure out the living out the most number of verses. But alas, I will agree. It, it's probably not really objectively possible. Is it worth then saying we want to have a subjective measure? I don't know because I, and this kind of goes back to the, the sort of the heart of the point, right? 
on one hand, yeah, you want to have something, a mission statement that's objective so you can measure it so that you can decide, are we actually optimizing? Uh, are there things that we could do to optimize even further? And it's also a beautiful test for changes to be able to make going forward. Does this change either by itself or in combination with other changes, does it increase or decrease our optimization toward this measurable outcome uh, to a degree? And we can actually look at that objectively and, and, and I would say rationally, but I think you can look at subjective things rationally as well. So purely from an objective measurable standpoint, right? But ultimately from a I don't know, a theological perspective, certainly philosophical, but I think probably even more on a theological perspective. If we truly believe in the power of scripture, which I think we do, and we truly believe in the Holy Spirit, which of course I think we do, and we believe in the Holy Spirit illuminating uh, knowledge, essentially taking knowledge and converting it into wisdom, right? Then that ultimately happens as long as we've got the verses memorized. And I think we can actually see this playing out in most people's lives realistically, where the the memorization illuminated by the Spirit actually does cause somebody to live out their life differently than they would be uh, otherwise. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of words to basically say, yeah, Luke, I agree um, from a from a from a philosophical perspective but i think practically from an objective measurable perspective i think it actually makes the mission statement uh, less useful from a um can we actually use this as a yardstick can we actually measure our progress uh, against it anything anything else but that you should add on? that should you know constantly be challenged right and also challenge the assumption that memorization of material is a useful thing to set out as the mission, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Right. I mean, now, granted, if we start questioning, if and actually questioning isn't the right word, because I think you're right. We should always be questioning. We should always be reevaluating. But if we come to believe that memorization is, per, if we doubt that memorization is as effective as it is, then we're starting to doubt the very essence of what quizzing is, right? Um, so that would be an interesting exercise, but I totally agree. We should be constantly looking back at our mission and say, like, let's say we get to this mission of as many quizzers, as many verses. That doesn't mean that that's always it and it never changes. I think there, there should always be this constant reevaluation of, is this really true? Is this really the case? Is this really what we want, you know, going forward? Yep. Cool. Well, you want to take us into the second one? Yeah, so the second point Luke made was, I think there are two main places where incentivizing quizzers to memorize material can happen, during weekly practices and during quiz meet. The main question is, how much of this burden of encouragement falls on coaches, the during quiz practice and during weekly practices part, and how much falls on the rules, and I'm putting some words into Luke's mouth, and the structure, right, competitive structure, um, so like the mechanics of how quizzes run at a quiz meet. Um, in other words, to what degree are we willing to change the current rule system in order to accommodate newer quizzers? And on the flip side, how much encouragement is needed at the quiz practice level? I think this is one of the main challenges we need to overcome in order to grow quizzing. Throw it to you first, Griffin. Yeah, so his last statement, uh, I think, is one of the main challenges we need to overcome in order to grow quizzing. I I cannot agree more. Um, I, I super agree, right? So, and I would actually expand a little bit on, on what, what Luke is talking about here. He's talking about on one hand, we've got the rules. And on another hand, we've got coaches during quiz practices. 
And then a sort of a different dimension over the top of that newer quizzers versus legacy quizzers or uh, longer term multi-year quizzers, non-rookie quizzers, that kind of thing. And then kind of the tiers of competitional level between all of that, you know, sort of universe. Right. I would add another two layers at minimum, uh, actually three, I think, to what he's talking about. So I, I completely agree with everything that he's saying here and all of these different ways of looking at it. I would also add parents. Parents are a massive um, sort of not really talked about important, crit critically important role in, in quizzing, possibly and arguably more important than coaches, I think, are, are what parents are doing or and if and even if they're not necessarily working with their kids directly, although if they are, their kids usually thrive. It's more that the kid, the, the parents are supportive of what the quizzers are doing, supportive of quizzing in terms of ensuring that there is space available for the quizzer to actually prepare outside of practices, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and then the, the another part of this is pastors. And churches in general and church leadership in general, right? So we've talked about in the past with great frustration how there are pastors and district superintendents who are anti-quizzing. We actually have a, a there's a CMA district superintendent right now who is uh, full-on persecuting uh, Bible quizzing in his district. Uh, and of course, obviously, Scott and I are deeply opposed to that. Um, we're biased, but we're not wrong. Uh, but I mean, pastors can do this as well. Uh, pastors can do it very transparently, bluntly, bigly uh, at a at a church level, but they can also do it subtly uh, in terms of, you know, just not really providing any support and sort of ignoring quizzing versus talking about quizzing and it, encouraging it. Not necessarily being the greatest cheerleader of quizzing is required, although that's great, uh, but rather getting some level of support that's above zero from the pastorate of a church is a very healthy and, and wise thing. And then the third thing is also uh, quizzers themselves. Uh, what what will encourage or discourage quizzers? And there's part of that that goes way beyond the rules and the structure and uh, goes into things like fellowship opportunities and social opportunities that um, certainly I don't want to see those things orchestrated in the rules. We need to sort of provide free space for those things to exist as meet organizers. Yeah, I think the main part of his question is really, really interesting. Basically, how much should policy decisions um, consider downstream impacts on non-quiz meet thing versus quiz meet things? And I don't really have a good answer. Give me an example of what you're diving into here. So if, if one of the bases of Luke's theory is correct, which I think it is, which is a main place where incentivizing quizzers to memorize material happens is during weekly practices, so not during quiz meets. Are there policy decisions that could help or hinder that incentivizing? When our policy decisions are usually focused on um, either things that happen at quiz meets or more of a higher level administrative kind of notion, right? Like either lower cost or um, the material version that's picked or what have you. Sure. Well, I mean, obviously the answer is yes. There there are things, there are policies at the, let's say the coach uh, slash church team level. There are policies at that level uh, that absolutely can incentivize or disincentivize quizzers to memorize, right? Absolutely. 
the question then is, should we, quote unquote, you know, and who is we? I mean, it's obviously not just Scott and me, but should the, should program leaders at different strata dictate to the coach church strata how they should do things to optimize there? And that's where I'm less sure. In fact, I think that's probably counterproductive because I think there's, there's too much variance at the at the quizzer level and at the at the church level, the team level, right? So some quizzers are motivated in certain ways, others are totally demotivated by those same things, right? And so I wouldn't want to prescribe anything to coaches to say, thou shalt run your quizzes, your quiz practices this particular way versus some other particular way. I think it, I think it's useful to lay out what are things that we have seen work well in certain situations for certain coaches. And, and especially, I think it's valuable to have current day coaches talk about what seems to work and what seems to not work with current day quizzers and current day teams, and then have other coaches learn from those things and experiment on their own. But I would hypothesize that what works for a given set of coaches is not necessarily going to work universally. Well, let's think about it. This may not be what you were thinking about, but what about not in a dictate sort of way, but something like um, question set availability? Right. Um, would it would it be a net positive, or I mean, not just net. Would it be extraordinarily positive if no church level coach had to worry about generating their own question set and focused on other things um, surrounding weekly practices? Um, could that be a, a greater source of incentivizing quizzers? Right, letting them almost giving them back more of their quizzing bucket time um, to do whatever they deem best. Yeah, and obviously, I think that's very true. In let's say ninety percent of the cases, right? So, and and there's a there's a short term effect and a long term effect. So let's talk about the short term effect. I think absolutely in a in a short term, let's say we're only really talking about say between you know in in a single season. Let's say say our time scope is a single season, providing high quality question sets for coaches to use for practice, such that they don't have to write their own questions is a tremendous value on a number of fronts. It, it allows the coach to not have to invest that time. So like you said, they can invest in other things. They can invest more of their focus and time and energy, excess energy in shepherding their quizzers, shepherding their teams and, and supporting their, their quizzers and teams and so forth. But then there's the the long-term effect, which I think is still potentially net positive, but it potentially has some minor negatives on the edges, which is not to say I don't think it should be done, but I think it should be done over the long term with a forethought of action. And what I mean by that is imagine, let's say, you know, you've got a certain number of people who write questions today, right? These people are not going to write questions forever. They will eventually retire and leave the program, which is very sad. We need to constantly be raising up future question writers and training them and always getting better at, better and better at writing questions, right? And so ultimately, how does one get better at writing questions? I think one gets better at writing questions by writing questions and then having those questions be debated and bantered about and edited and thrown back and forth and that kind of stuff like like wrestled with and so in certain districts like in pnw we have an editor we have a question writers pool and we have a question editors pool and uh, so if you're 
at all interested in getting good at writing questions and understanding how that works and, and editing questions, you can be part of those pools and you're, you're going to get a lot of practical experience doing that. Not every district has that. And I would be worried, even in PNW, where we do have that, I would be worried about our pool getting smaller and smaller over time if we're not in deliberately encouraging people to write uh, questions. Now, are we talking about 100% of coaches writing questions? Of course not, right? Um, there's, um, I, I'm, I can think of a couple coaches in PNW who are magnificent coaches. And or and and I'm, when I say in PNW, I'm I'm thinking like say over the last five or ten years, I can think of coaches who are and were magnificent coaches who weren't really the best question writers in the world, and that's totally cool because their job was to be a coach, and and they did question writing as sort of a necessary thing so that they could do what they're really good at, which is being coaches. And I think the same can be said for other people where. If you needed them to be a coach in a pinch, they would be fine. There would be no problem, but they're much more, let's say, nerdy, uh, and they might be able to write questions a little bit more effectively. And so I would want to encourage a universe where they had the opportunity, sort of the, a reason to write questions. So anyway, I'm, I'm kind of going off on a tangent from what you're, you're saying, which, you know, granted is just the example, but I think. Like, yeah, I think there are certain things that a district can do that can foster that sort of environment. But again, in your example, we're talking about writing questions. That's really kind of a district and even bigger decision of like, do you make those question sets available or not? And do you force your, your coaches then to write question sets or not? Um, and, and I mean, certainly even in a situation where you've got coaches who are, let's say, forced, quote unquote, by their district, not providing sets to write questions, those coaches will, you know, if they're if they're really, you know, short on time, they're going to go to Keith Smith or somebody else and buy question sets. Right. Right. Anyway, sorry, yeah, I don't I'm, think I, I'm just going to I went down a really long rabbit hole here, but it's really more to say, like, I think you're right and I think you're onto something and I agree with you. But it's um, there are there. I think there are ripple consequences over the long term for everything that happened. Sure. I don't think I have anything else to add on this one. <clears throat> okay. Well, and one thing I, I, I do want to say on this one before moving on. Um, Luke mentions a couple of different areas. Rules is one that he mentions. He also talks about uh, coaching at practices. And I'm sure there's other sort of concept, different different ways to slice the onion. Right. I agree there are multiple different ways of attacking the optimization to mission. And I want to attack the optimization on all fronts rather than rather than like fewer fronts. Right. So the fact that we can optimize the rules means we should. The fact that we can potentially optimize uh, coaching practices, it means I think we should. Right. Um but the question is really more who has the authority and the responsibility to do each of those things. I would want coaches to be have the authority and responsibility to optimize their their practices and rules committees or or whatever the structure happens to be um, to uh, to wrestle with the rules to optimize it. But I think there are multiple different channels, let's say, of optimizational opportunity. And I want to I want to attack all of them. And I can so I don't currently sit on the rules committee for good reason. I recommend 
ideas to the rules committee and I debate with the rules committee about various different things, which everybody is free to do, by the way, on, on GitHub. And I encourage anybody who's interested to do so. Um, but it's I don't have the authority to implement any of those rules. And similarly, I don't think uh, I or anybody outside of a coach at a church should implement for that coach their policies or prescribe their policies. I guess that's the word I'm looking for. Prescribe. Right. All right. Well, you want to go to the third one? Yeah. You want me to hit it? Yep. Go for it. Again, back to Luke's email. I actually really like the idea of open book quizzing for first-time quizzers. I'm a university student, and I've had a couple courses where open book midterms were conducted, followed by a closed book final exam. Having that first experience be more focused on getting to know what it's like to be knowledgeable in the material is awesome. It allows first-time quizzers more opportunities to get the adrenaline rush from a correct answer, which for some quizzers takes several meets. Then, knowing what it's like to be knowledgeable, that quizzer can go on to memorize the material and be involved in. I know of many quizzers, myself included, who had the realization, hey, quizzing is a lot more enjoyable and fulfilling if I actually memorize verses several years after participating in the program. Open book quizzing would definitely jumpstart the memorization process. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree. <laughs> I mean, um, I don't even know that if I have anything really to add here. Uh, I think it's... I think it's a really interesting, it's not realization, but like observation that he's, because I think f even though everyone has gone through school of some kind, I think it's easy to look at quizzing and assume that it either wouldn't be fun or would be too easy or would cause quizzers to not want to memorize if they could do open book quizzing, regardless of what sort of scoring reward they got, right? Significant or small. Um, but I think it's, a, I think it's very true that if all like basically at the very beginning of your quizzing experience, you can get the feeling of what it's like to be knowledgeable. I, I think that that is really powerful, right? And this extends to any subject. If you can get the feeling of doing something meaningful or rewarding um, as quickly as possible, it makes it easier to keep going. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And it kind of goes back to what we were talking about a couple of episodes ago with regard to like, you know, pick up a baseball game. If you know absolutely nothing about baseball, but you have enough people uh, yelling at you, you know, it's a pick up this piece of wood and hit that ball with it as, as it comes sailing at your head very rapidly. You may not be very good at it. Um, you may strike out uh, or something, but um, at least you, you get, up to base or not to base you get to home plate you actually get to swing you get to have a try you know these kind of things um golf might be the same thing so you know as an amusing mental example imagine if scott and i were going to go to the golf course scott would you know probably hit par or slightly under and i would not by a wide margin but at least i could i could i could carry the clubs and i could whack a ball and i could you know walk along the course along with Scott, you know, these, these sorts of things. So like, even though I'm nowhere near the sort of capability level of Scott, when it comes to golf, um, I can still get something out of the experience. It won't be anything close to what Scott gets out of the experience, but it's at least greater than zero. And as a result of that, then I can be thinking to myself like, Hmm, this actually kind of is fun. And maybe I want to practice a little bit more or go to the golf course more or these sorts of things. Whereas if I just watch golf on TV, I basically fall asleep, I think. Right. 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 Like, it, but I think it's more than, it's more than just the ability to participate. So I think I would, 
change your analogy somewhat. It's not just the ability to like participate in baseball and golf, but be bad at it. It's like it's the ability to feel what it's like to be good at it. Well, not um, good. No, no, not good. It's it's the ability to succeed at a small portion of it, right? So if I'm, you know, the golf cor- the golf analogy, right? So I'm whacking at a ball um, on a tee with a wood, right? Like what a one wood, a three wood? Help me out here. I'm I'm a total idiot. A driver or a three a dr- wood? Driver or a three wood? Okay, so let's say I'm 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 whacking at the ball on a tee of a, uh, and I'm I'm I, and my first swing just doesn't even hit the ball, right? Well, it's like, okay, no big deal. Just try to swing again and hit the ball, right? But ultimately, what I'm succeeding at ultimately is not that I'm whacking the ball really close to the green, but rather that I am whacking the ball, right? Whereas I think ultimately with quizzing, the and obviously it's an analogy and all analogies break down at some point, but at, with quizzing, if I don't have an open book opportunity... I essentially have to practice golf to some degree before I can even have a chance of hitting the golf ball, right? And so it's like if I show up to a meet with zero versus memorized, it's like I can't even hit the ball. I I can swing at the ball, but I'm just going to look foolish. And so basically it's better if I just say, yeah, you know what, Scott, I'll I'll caddy for you. Um and maybe I'll get some, you know, social enjoyment out of that experience, but I don't get a chance to even hit the ball, right? Sure. Well, any other thoughts on this? I don't. Yeah. I mean, I I just think Luke nails it. Um, it's a great analogy from, you know, open book uh, midterms and so forth. Now, here's here's a kind of an interesting thing. Granted, we need to play test this to really know for sure. But would you want to say something like you can't do open book in finals? at say a district level meet or is it rather that we should adjust the rules so that there is a disadvantage to open book sufficient that it precludes getting into finals in the first place right i'm i think you would want more of the latter um yeah and but i you could... i think some something like you know open book questions are um half the points and you can only get one a quiz or something. Right. I wouldn't be quite so draconian. I was thinking more like um, open book questions are like, let's say a quiz out is four. You can, you, you would quiz out quote unquote with two questions instead of four there. If normal questions are worth 20, these are worth 10, um, these sorts of things. Right. So it, 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 it puts points on the board, but it, there's there's serious limitations to the scoring potential there. So the idea being that if you have a team of, say, you know, one person who's reasonably memorized and three people who haven't memorized all that well, but have maybe got a couple of verses and their close book versus another team of one quizzer who's equivalent in captaincy to the the other team and then three quizzers who are open book. I want the team that is closed book to be able to do better, most likely in terms of scores on the on the not necessarily in terms of questions answered, but in terms of points on the board. Yeah, yeah. And I think you could even just mess with the scoring, right? Where like a correct question a quarter of the points or something, but then yeah. everything else stays the same where it right. goes out. Or the, you know, you just kind of have to change one of the two sliders. Right. Right. Well, and I mean, part of it is also oddly the difficulty of question ch- type in some ways flips sometimes 
when you're talking about closed book versus open book. So like in a in an open book versus closed book, let's say we're, we're let's start with closed book. Uh, compare quotes to interrogatives. Interrogatives are significantly easier than quotes, right? For obvious reasons. Okay, but flip now to an open book. A quote question is probably slightly easier than an interrogative. Actually, no. Let me let me rephrase that. I think a quote is actually significantly easier than an interrogative when you're talking open book. Right, because the the factors that would make a question difficult are completely changed, right? So right. Um, in closed book, if you don't know much material, then the pure amount of material required to get a question correct is your hardest, is, the, is what makes a question the hardest. So for someone that does not have the whole material memorized, um, questions like quote these two or a long situation, those are like the hardest. For quizzers that have the whole material memorized or have a whole type mastered, the main factor in a question being difficult is how long does it take to become unique? And like, can I jump after it's unique and win the jump? Um, it doesn't matter how long it is at that point, right? If I, if a, an experienced quizzer has to quote three verses word perfect, but they get the jump on the full reference, well, um, a lot of the time they're gonna, just going to convert it. When, when you go to open book, really amount of material is irrelevant. Um, how quickly something becomes unique is almost irrelevant because you're, it's not like you're jumping in recognition, but you're probably not jumping at that razor's edge. Right, so you're you're probably getting something. Um, really, the main factor is how easily can I locate. Right. And so it could be that quotes and chapter verse references are the easy, and an interrogative might actually be the hardest type because you don't know where to look. Yeah, exactly. I mean, unless you have material that provides some sort of concordance in the material that you can reference really quickly or something like that. But yeah, exactly. And then, and then, of course, then the flip side of that is you say, okay, well, we kind of want that because from an interrogative perspective, if I want, as an open book quizzer, if I want to answer an interrogative, I want to at minimum read the material before, you know, if I don't memorize anything, at least read the material. So at least I have a vague idea of where I should look when I hear something that sounds familiar. Right. Um, but that's kind of interesting. And then then it sets up a kind of a sort of a third order of effect here. So imagine I am a, on a team that has some open book quizzers. You're on an opposing team and I know that you are a quote specialist. Do I want to have my open book quizzers attempt to fight off the jumps for quote questions? Not so much because we're going to gain a lot of points because we won't. Our points are going to be capped, right? Um, or or halved or quartered or whatever it happens to be. But rather as a, but if, if they stand a chance of potentially getting the question correct and they can beat you out for a jump, you're prevented from getting the points from that particular question type, which of course in the, in the current world order is not as big of a deal necessarily because all the points are the same, but we've been talking about, you know, in a future world order, you know, a third age where we can actually say, well, what if quotes are actually worth more points than interrogatives? And so there could be something to be said about saying, well, yeah, the value of an open book quizzer is not just that they can put points on the board and get something out of it, but they can potentially take away a high value question from another team. Which is not something that you would want, right? I don't want that, probably. Um, 
I mean, it reduces the value of studying for quotes. But again, right now, a quote in terms of value, score value, is the same as in an interrogative, right? And I think I think I want to increase, I want to sort of provide more opportunities for people at the upper end to be able to distinguish themselves. And so by providing more points for quotes, I think we're starting to get into that territory. But then do I want to say, okay, open book quizzers are not allowed to jump on quotes? Like you can jump on to finish the verse, but you can't jump on quotes if you're if you're open book because it's way too easy to be able to, you know, grab that extra point away from somebody else. And then the question is, do we do the same thing with, say, chapter verse reference questions? I think it's totally fine to uh, have a um, uh, an open book on a, say, a chapter reference. Uh, but a chapter verse reference seems to me to be, I mean, from an open book perspective, not terribly different than a than a quote question. Right. And one specific change to what you said is you said that quotes and interrogatives are worth the same amount of points, right, in today's quizzing. Right. While that's true, um, it is far more common to have a keyword specialist than an interrogative specialist. Mm. And so if you are facing a team, it is much like if you are able to win every quote jump it it doesn't really matter it matters less if you're getting them right because you have you have ensured that this opponent quizzer scores zero instead of probably scoring a positive score um and for if quizzers are that one-dimensional um it can be very advantageous completely remove them from the right and then the question is do we want that to be the case right and so a a couple things like when you say, do we want that to be the case? You could be saying, do we want there to be enough scoring incentive for someone to to specialize that one dimensionally? But you could also be, you could be saying this as well. Do we want there to be such benefit to base to, in essence, intentionally erring on a question um, right. for that to be a viable strategy, right? Right. And, and, that, and the latter is what I was really focusing on more. I mean, obviously we've talked about this before. I'm, I'm, I'm not a fan of specialization allowing for the opportunity of doing better by memorizing fewer verses, um, though I am totally cool with specialization from a, from the perspective of just getting better at the verses that you've already memorized. But then, and I know that, that it starts to get really in the weeds on some of the edges where those two philosophies kind of meet in the middle, so it gets kind of fuzzy there. But really, I'm more interested here in avoiding a situation where there is a massive advantage to causing another team to not be able to get questions. Right. And this might be the competitiveness in me, but really the only times when it was advantageous for my team to do that was because another team had had a quiz that was that one dimensional, which was their choice to do or not do. Right. <laughs> right? right. Which doesn't mean that you still shouldn't change the rule set to make it less advantageous for me to try to throw a question. Um, but you are free to um, reduce that incentive by your opponents. Right. And I mean, and going to your point there, like I'm not a fan of the rule that says uh, if it's obvious that a quizzer threw a question, uh, there's a penalty, right? Not because I want to encourage or even really condone the idea of throwing questions, but rather to say, like, it's it's subjective. And granted, there are certain cases where it's so obviously true that even though it is subjective, it it's 
very, 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 very probable that you're right, <laughs> that they that they threw a question. I'm still not a fan of it. Right. It, it puts the quiz master in a really difficult position of trying to evaluate what's going on with a quizzer. I think it would be far better holistically to try to attack that sort of behavior by just simply making it more valuable to get the question right um, than anything else. And then, yeah, like like. There are all sort of, you know, ripple effects and, and unintended consequences to the stuff we're, we're talking about here. There be dragons, right? Yeah. I, it reminds me of football, right? When if a team is ahead by enough points at the end of the game, it might be advantageous for them or the optimal strategy for them to simply take a knee every play, basically intentionally giving up. Um, but the only way that they get there is if they are ahead by enough where it doesn't matter. Um, and Probably the simplest analogy in quizzing is merely sitting when no team can catch you. Um, but I wouldn't consider it to be that different if you can intentionally err, um, but that's the optimal strategy for you win. Um, it, it, it seems weird for us to, I don't know. I, I mean, we want to encourage people to do things to get questions right, not to... Um, yeah, it's tough because I guess at the end of the day, the incentive has to be to win, right? Well, and the thing is, like, I think what you're talking about is totally reasonable in a two-team environment, right? Where it's like, if it turns out in a, in a two-team environment, if it is better for me to, uh, you know, err on a question, um, fine, right? It's just, it seems it, and, and and to go to your football analogy, it's not so much taking a knee because taking a knee is simply not playing. It would be like, you know, me not jumping on a question, right, in quizzing. Rather, I think instead, if you're using the football analogy, it would be like a team intentionally fumbling uh, at some point in the game, right? Like, like, it's just like, that's weird. But again... If there were ever some sort of rule set that made it advantageous for a team to intentionally fumble, okay, fine. They intentionally fumble. Like, like, who cares? Like, they, they're only in that position because of what happened prior into the quiz, right? Where it becomes difficult in quizzing is we're not doing two-team quizzing. We're doing, well, most of the time, uh, it's a three-team environment. And so there can definitely be a strategy to saying, well, we want to throw this question because then this other team will win. And that gives us an advantage in a, in a different context than just this question or this quiz. Right. And so similarly, it would be like, you know, a football team intentionally throwing a game because somehow it causes something to happen in terms of the playoff rankings or, or, or something, right? Like I, I can't even imagine a, a situation where that would be the case, but, but imagine a rule set where a team, a football team intentionally throws a game because if their opponent wins, it ends up working better for that original football team uh, because of how the, the, the brackets work or something like that. Right. Right. I'm reminded of something that happened in the world of sumo wrestling where at the end of sumo wrestling is one versus one, but at the end of a long amount of basically preliminary bouts, um, one wrestler intentionally lost um, because his opponent was on the cusp of making basically their finals or not. Um, wait, I, I'm telling it wrong, but basically it, it was advantageous to a wrestler that was not competing in that one V one bout for this guy to intentionally lose. Um, I don't know if it like brought someone else's strength of schedule or winning percentage 
down, um, but it had like a second order effect unrelated to the bout, you know, and it's just, it's hard even in a 1v1 environment to eliminate all outside incentive. I'm I'm also reminded of a, um, a Great West quiz where the team that I coached was out of it by the time a question um, arrived. And we jumped on question 20 and got it right. And afterwards, I was asked by a different coach, like, why did you jump on that? Like, very nicely. Why did you jump on that when um, you couldn't win the quiz? You couldn't even get second. Um, like, in our district, we just never do that. And I was like, well, there's a lot of other potential things going on. Like, um, this was prelims at Great West. So um, individual averages were happening, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but also, that's an opportunity for a quizzer who maybe is not doing great to get a question correct kind of change your mindset mindset and, and uh, momentum going into later quizzes. Um, all that to say, it's just really, really hard to assume there are no other incentives or motivations going on. And, and it's really hard to eliminate all of them if that's desired. Right. Well, this is reminding me of the whole Magnus Hans situation going on in the world of chess um, that, you know, blew up just a handful of weeks ago. I think the near the beginning of of September, second week of September. uh, I don't know. I'm forgetting exactly. But it's the you know, the the Magnus, you know, is is, you know, Magnus Carlson, greatest chess player theoretically ever in the history of chess. Um, Certainly the greatest chess player. Uh, player currently competing, possibly the best you know chess player of all time of all history. There are arguments about that, but I mean, I think there's 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 definitely an argument that can be made that he's in fact that good. Uh, and uh, then Hans uh, Nyman uh, plays him in. Oh gosh, I can't even remember now. It was like Pennsylvania. Oh gosh, or Pittsburgh or Philadelphia. Maybe it was Philadelphia. Oh golly. Now I feel like an idiot. I can't. It's it's it's. I'm pretty sure it's a place that starts with a P. If that makes any sense. Um, <laughs> but anyway, they they uh, they played a game. Played a game. Magnus was like Magnus lost um, pretty significantly, which is very weird. I mean, like Magnus doesn't lose chess games. Like it it just it's very 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 rare that he that he loses a chess game, and he lost pretty badly. Hans pretty well beat him up. And uh, so Magnus ends up withdrawing from the tournament the next day and it caused this big, you know, chess controversy. And, you know, then it's and of course, now we're talking about something totally non quizzing because the chess world is uh, is, you know, for the last, what, four weeks or something, three weeks has been up in arms over did Hans cheat? If so, how did he do it? Um, And, you know, all kinds of crazy has been flying around the interwebs with regard to what happened and the sort of the ripple effects thereof. But how does this relate to quizzing? Because obviously I'm I'm not really worried about people cheating and quizzing uh, realistically. I mean, maybe it does happen here and there, but um, I, I honestly just don't think it happens. But whatever. That's not really the angle I'm looking at. It's more what are the consequences of deciding things at a question level and a quiz level? The thing is, what happens at a question level impacts the quiz? What happens at a quiz level impacts the meet? What happens at a meet level impacts beyond? And it's like, you know, sometimes those things are very direct, right? You end up not protesting 
a hastily overruled challenge in an XYZ in Phoenix, and it results in your team not being able to get into the finals because you can't make top nine, right? I mean, there, there are things like that, ripple effects that, that are very obvious and can be mathematically charted. And then there are sort of other effects that you can't chart. Uh, you getting that question on 20 helped your individual average by a certain amount, which then rippled over to something that happened in the district that allowed you to get into the top five, let's say, uh, versus being in sixth place and thus being able to qualify for internationals or not because of that one question. Now, that's a little bit more of a stretch, but I mean, it's still possible. There are all sort of there are like multiple levels of externalities uh, that 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 put into play. And so I, I don't want the rules to sort of preclude the details i want the details to sort of be shaken out by the participants in the moment yeah all right well shall we move on yeah all right to luke's final point yeah so luke's final point uh he it talks a little bit about uh what we raised in our last episode 121 with regard to quiz generation or the algorithms of the generation and uh he actually had a couple of ideas, a couple of questions, and he actually wrote up a uh, an algorithm from his perspective of how to generate an ideal quiz. And I want to get into that algorithm. But before we get to those things, I want to sort of revisit the the twin questions of why should we care and what are the implications? In other words, like to what degree should we care about the algorithm for quiz generation or algorithms, plural, for quiz generation? And should it be something that, you know, us nerds just care about in our little secret nerd caves or should more of quizzingdom actually care about quiz generation in terms of the specific algorithm? Certainly we are we all should care in terms of, of, of assuming however quizzes are generated, they should be in alignment with the rules. They should be valid quizzes. Right. But assuming that all quizzes generated are valid, should non-nerds care about how the quizzes are generated. So, Scott, what do you think? Hmm. So, I do think that non-nerds should care, but I need to justify that. Now, this is definitely coming from a very competitive standpoint, but the way that I view the com- the competitive, the competition of quizzing is that the things that happened should be, I guess, expected is the right word. Um, so some examples of things that aren't um, expected. If the rule book says that um, finish the verse questions should come from verses that are significant, um, but some people say, hey, I just want these to be on any verse, right? Well, then there's the potential for quizzers to be asked questions that they didn't expect, right? Um, and you you can get into semantics of you know interpretation or what's actually better. But like at the end of the day, you could definitely have a, you know, a situation where a quizzers asked a question that they just, they honestly did not expect. And I don't think we want that, right? Like it's one thing for a quizzer to have said a bunch of words and one quiz master would rule them correct and a different quiz master would rule them incorrect. Well, we're kind of, I wouldn't say that that is, is not expected, right? There are that's a subjective area where there's going to be variance. We can't anticipate everything. But when it comes to quiz generation, we can know exactly what we're doing and make it so that it is completely expected. And I think most quizzers just expect that quizzes are not only random, but beyond that, they're almost 
I mean, they're not just valid, but beyond that, everything is as random as it can be. At least that would be my assumption, right? Like, um, I shouldn't be able to predict whether or not there's going to be a quote on question um, or whether or not all the situation questions are going to be asked by question 17, right? Um, if somebody has made decisions um, willingly, um, consciously or unconsciously, that cause such possible prediction, I don't think we want that. But um, but only because it would be something that is or is not expected by the competitor. Because I think it can be very frustrating to not succeed or not do as well as you wanted because of something that wasn't expected um, that you couldn't have expected. It's one thing to like learn things over time, um, and it's one thing to not do well and be able to say like, hey, you know, I, I just I was beat or I didn't memorize well enough. I feel like those things, at least for me, are things you can accept. But if I didn't do well because um, I was expecting the situation questions from Matthew to include the teacher and sir ones, which are which are not key very quick and would slow me down, but instead I didn't hear a single one, um, I would wonder, like, did someone make a decision to then provide, not me specifically, but everybody something that was not expected by me that... I had no way of knowing it. And I think that that can be very frustrating and cause you to any competitor to kind of almost pull back or wonder, is this something that I want to spend time on? If I can do less well than I was hoping to or expecting to because of something that I literally couldn't. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree, obviously. I think that's an important angle to look at it. And I think it's a, a valid consideration of why non-nerds should care. I'd go a step further and say non-nerds should care in the same way that non-quants who are investors should care that insider trading is not a thing, or at least insider trading is highly discouraged and criminal, right? Uh, it, it, insider tra tra trading is, is criminalized, right? The, and, and why is that, right? We, it, it's, you know, when I invest, I expect the stock can go up or down, right? And that's, you know, when I, when I buy something or, or when I short something, I'm taking on a certain level of risk. I'm calculating it to some degree, but for the most part, I'm just making, you know, estimates based on, you know, models and, and other sorts of predictions. And I'm expecting the environment to be fair to some degree. So if somebody on the inside of the company, somebody with, you know, special knowledge is able to invest, they're investing, well, speculating at that point in a way that doesn't carry the risk that I'm carrying. And therefore it's inherently unfair. And that's something I don't want to see happen in quizzing. Right. So ultimately we're, we're, what, let's let me tie the insider trading concept back into like what would be what it would be like in quizzing imagine that there is an algorithm that generates a quiz that's being used where that algorithm is completely in alignment with the rules therefore generating a quiz that is valid but it is something that if you know the details of the algorithm, it gives you the opportunity to predict something that gives you an advantage over somebody who doesn't know what that algorithm is. Right. To me, I want non nerds to care about that while not having to care about what the algorithm is in particular. In other words, I'll, I'll slice the onion this way. I'll say I want non nerds to care 
about the algorithm such that they don't need to care about the algorithm, right? I want them to care that the algorithm is transparent and is as, you know, as, as Scott is how you said it, as random as possible, such that there is no way to game based on knowing the algorithm. Thus, non-nerds can actually remain non-nerds, despite the fact that I would always love to see more quizzing nerds exist, right? Uh, but yet, yet I don't want to require nerddom for quizzing success. Yeah, I think that's well said. <laughs> I don't think it's well said right. at all, <laughs> but, but okay. But, you know, like you, you should care to the extent such that you actually don't have to care. I think right. that's like a really good way to put it. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's jump into the next one. You want to read that one? So this is so that was kind of us setting up. Um, you know, why should people care? What are the implications of caring about the algorithm of quiz generation? Um, which sets us up for Luke's final piece of feedback. I'm sure there are multiple and valid usable quiz generation algorithms out there. Would it not be viable to make an algorithm of algorithms, so to speak, which would choose a different algorithm depending on the situation? And again, algorithm is kind of like a 10 cent word, but it's just a, a method of doing a thing, right? The same method each time. I suppose one way to do this would be to just have a, a set of several algorithms and choose randomly from them for a given for each given quiz. Not only would this ensure valid quiz generation, but it would also make it virtually impossible, even given the complete code or process of the algorithm, to benefit from knowing it. Um, should we hit that first before we get into the... Yeah, let's hit that. What do, what do you think about that? I think that having an algorithm of algorithms where you're kind of just randomly picking an algorithm would be very useful for the as random as possible side of it, but it still could be that there is, there are like um, good and less good algorithms. Um, and if that's the case, I would not want there to be an option to choose the less good algorithm unless we, we see that the gain from that random process being high enough. Um, it kind of, it reminds me of baseball where st statistical analysis showed that bunting was extremely um a use a useless thing to do and so teams really st stopped bunting and or they bunted a lot less but someone pointed out that you should bunt enough time only enough times um, to seed the doubt into your opponent such that they align their defense in a in a suboptimal way every time um, so it could be that in this case if ultimate randomness is the the true goal that having a slightly less good algorithm determine the question set for a quiz some percentage of the time it's like worth it to get to that true randomness Ooh. but that's making a lot of that's making a lot of assumptions my mind is blown because before you said that i was gonna i was actually latching onto the first part of what you said and in agreement with it before you said the second part because like your first part was basically ideally we just want the best of a set of algorithms and by best i mean most like like can we can we find an algorithm and i think we can uh in fact i think actually luke's example algorithm is awful close uh to the ideal algorithm but when we'll get to that in a second but can we get to an ideal algorithm that actually produces uh, a situation where even if you know the algorithm, there's no way to game it. 
uh, and there's there's no advantage to knowing what the algorithm is. Uh, therefore, non-nerds can remain non-nerds. But then you brought up an interesting point. Is there a scenario? And there may not be, but it is a very interesting thought exercise. Is there a scenario where having less than ideal algorithms in a pool of algorithms that are then selected by a meta algorithm cause a situation where the non-randomness is possible to improve things toward our our mission, right? Does it actually encourage memorization to a certain degree? Now, I'm thinking that there's like like four layers of abstraction here that I have to like mentally parse through before I can like figure out the math on this. So, I mean, my mind is reeling on trying to like come up with an approximation for it. And I have no idea if it's any true. I would expect sort of my, my spidey sense is that the ROI is probably negative to go down this road, but nevertheless, the nerd in me really, really wants to get my walking stick anyway. Right. I would agree that it is probably going to be a net negative. Like that it's, you know, 10 units of effort for 0.1 units of gain. Right. Um, but I do think because like, for the baseball analogy, it's, I am doing a thing that is extremely suboptimal bunting on one play um, with the idea that I gain a very small amount over the next 2000. Right. Uh, and, um, that could be possible in a quiz set generation algorithm as well. But I think really you just within the minimums and maximums, which are there for a reason, but within that, it should be a system that nobody can predict. Um, And not being able to predict is different than being able to develop a probability, right? Because you can say, oh, there's probably a two thirds chance that question 20 is this type um, and that's fine, but you shouldn't be able to know that it's that type. Unless, of course, it's because of the right, right. Oh, I had an idea, but now it's lost in my head. Well, let's let's go on to the code. You want to walk through um, uh, Luke's proposed code idea? Yep, yep. So the first step is iterate through each question type. So you're going to do these steps um, within each question type. For each question type, you randomly generate the minimum amount of questions from the complete set of questions from that type. So in a quiz, if the minimum number of interrogatives is nine and there's 1300 written interrogatives. You just do something random to get nine interrogatives from that pool of 30. This is giving no weight to chapters or anything. Um, so then you, you store this set of questions. So do that for interrogatives, but also for all the other types. Um, and that's your starting set. And then you, for each question set, you randomly generate the remaining amount of questions to reach the maximum. So, I'm doing this off the top of my head, but for interrogatives for one of the years, I think the maximum 14 and the minimum is nine. Is that true? Yeah, so you would right, yeah. Sub- you subtract the two, five, and then you ge- you use that count to generate five random interrogatives from your pool of 1,300. Um, and then that's your kind of second set. And then you you randomize the order of each of them, right? Because let's say you, you went through alphabetically and got the CRs first, CVRs, and then the, I think, interrogatives. Well, you don't, you don't want the order of the questions to be the alphabetical order of the types. So you just randomize that first set of the minimums and then the the second set of the maximum. And then from your first set, which is the minimums, you randomly assign um, 19 questions um, to numbers one through. um, But there's only 19 questions. There's 20 numbers, which means random. It'll be random. But one of those numbers, one to 20, will not be assigned a question from them. But nobody should know whether it's question one or 
right? Or anywhere. Um, and then that that 20th numbered question will come from question set two, right? Because as long as we're picking from question set two, we'll stay within the maximums. Um, and we've already done everything from question set one. So we've hit all of our minimums. So we're kind of done there. And then you just randomly, remember the, the sets are ordered or randomized. So you can just pick from the top. And then your final step is just take your A's and B's from um, that the remaining questions in question set two. And so I think, what are the key points here? Like everything is very random, right? So um, the order of everything is random. Um, the questions chosen among it for question set two will reflect the proportions of the maximums, right? So the maximums versus uh, minus the minimum. Those proportions are what rule. It doesn't matter if I wrote 3,500 chapter reference. Um, I only get I think it's two reference questions, five minus three or three, six minus three. Um, it's determined by the maximum minus the minimum. It's not determined by how many I wrote, which I think is is the way that we want to do it. The question writers should not be making question writing decisions um, knowing that the number of questions that they write of a given type will influence how many actually get asked. I think that's bad. Um, just write good questions and then everything else should be taken care of separately that does not is not affected by how many good questions there are of other type or not. Yeah, totally agree. Even though I really, well, okay, not to go on a tangent here, there is part of me that would love for the underlying material to influence the distribution of the questions that show up into a quiz. So like, is Luke different than John? Is it different than Acts? Is it different than Hebrews? Is it different than James and Romans? And how does that, how do those differences evoke slightly different scales of types of questions within the the construct of a particular quiz based on that material? I kind of like that. The problem is the unintended and unavoidable and very, very, very bad consequence of even going down that road is that question writers don't write question sets in a void. They're, they would be aware that that's actually part of an algorithm or part of, say, a, a, a philosophy, and therefore it would impact their writing. And I, the negative of that is, um, is substantial, right? Like, like it would filter into sort of desperate question writing, very similar to like prior to algorithmic generation of quiz sets, we would have desperately randomly generated humanly random quizzes, which is to say not random at all, uh, or at least partially random, but like you would never see a run of say three reference questions in a row because a human would look at that and say, well, that's not random. I need to insert something else into that that run of three to break it apart whereas true random that's a totally normal occurrence now it's rare but it but it definitely happens above zero times right and i think you know that's when you say desperately random that's actually um a known term right yeah where it's it's because it's human influenced it ends up not being random even when the intent is for it to be as random as possible um yeah i i think Unfortunately, there isn't a good way to let the different kind of realities of material um, be borne out into the asked questions. It kind of gets borne out in in other 
competitive ways where certain types are easier or harder depending on the year, right? Which changes where quizzers might allocate um, study time. Um, but it doesn't change specifically um, like the range of questions asked, right? It's not like, oh, um, we would love a, a way higher percentage of the questions to come from John 14 when John 14 exists, right? right we don't right. have that. We don't, we don't have that abil ability now like, to do that. Um, and there, there are pros and cons of gaining the ability to. Right. Anything you want to comment on the algorithm before we move on? Um, I think it, I think it's exactly the way that I would want things. I can't think of a change that I would make. Yeah. Ditto from a basic level. I think there are things that need to be added into this algorithm that, that are necessary where, where sets are randomized, how they're randomized. Well, maybe not so much of the how, but where, where in the process and the flow that the, the components are getting randomized. I think you need to be able to support certain weighting of the questions. I think you need to take into account things like, well, how do you pick a question if it's been used before in a meet and to what degree do you allow that influence to to happen? How much weighting of past used questions versus unused questions do you allow to, to factor in? Uh, to what degree do you allow the avoidance or attempt to avoid uh, multiple questions from the same verse of material, which granted in a, you know, a purely random universe with a large enough material set is very unlikely, but it's still above zero. Do you try to avoid that? And then of course, you know, going back to our original point, do you try to avoid a situation where, you know, yeah, the quiz is generated randomly, but maybe you actually want to look at runs of three, uh, type groups together and say, we actually don't want to do that. And as long as that is known and public information, then is there a net value to including that? So in other words, there are certain things that this algorithm I think needs to do under the current rule set that it currently doesn't do, even though I don't see any flaw in the algorithm as it currently stands at its basic level, right? No, no question there. Um, but then there are other things that I would want to an algorithm to consider maybe doing, but I would because I think there is a benefit for the algorithm to do those things, but I would only advocate that the algorithm do those things if they were explicitly labeled as policies, practices, rules in the rule book, right? So in other words, I would not want to see an algorithm say, I don't want to have, say, two quote questions back to back, right? As one example, um, I don't want to have that happen. And I can certainly code that in the algorithm, but I don't want to have that be part of an algorithm unless it's defined in the rule book in a non-code sort of way, because that would be information that a quizzer could then look at and then game the system if they were a nerd. In other words, um, you know, if you, if you see a quote question, you know the next question isn't a quote question, right? That's a a small but still not non-zero amount of information that gives one team an advantage over another uh, another team if they study the algorithm. Therefore, I wouldn't want that to be a part of the algorithm unless it's in the rules. But I think there could be examples of those things we do want to have in the algorithm because it would ultimately have a very small, I mean, probably microscopic net positive toward mission. Right. So I think we agree that Luke's proposed algorithm is is perfect for the first some percentage of scenarios. Um, might be 
the first 70 or 80% in generating a, a quiz set, but then there are a bunch of details that we would also want the ability, like weighting of chapter, specifically how you do that. Right. Well, and outside of weighting of chapters, I think his algorithm, assuming that you're, you don't have to do any weighting of chapters, uh, then his algorithm works just fine for a single quiz. Um, and and I, I, in fact, I think it works perfectly for a single quiz uh, based on what the rule book says right now. I think when it comes to a meet, it's actually suboptimal, um, but not by a lot. Um, you know, like like I think there's a two to seven percent improvement that can be made by dealing with like um, used question counts and prioritization that way. Right. But just because Luke doesn't comment comment on it doesn't mean that he considered it and doesn't think it's you. It could oh, just absolutely. Be he didn't go, to, go to that level of detail. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm only commenting right. on on what he wrote. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So I think if you ask a one interrogative in, in quiz one, you probably want there to be a, a lower chance of it being asked going forward. Um, but that's a question that somebody has to make and probably should be known to every participant. Right. Well, and now here's the thing. Maybe I'm maybe I'm actually wrong on this and maybe I should counter myself on this because if there's an algorithm, there's nothing in the rulebook that, that has anything to prescribe about used question counts factoring into an algorithm for quiz generation. And is that a, if you know that an algorithm takes that into account versus doesn't, does a team that tracks every question that's being asked gain some microscopic advantage towards the end of a meet versus a team that's unaware that that is something that can be leveraged? Right. So, I mean, that was the the sole motivation for the rule change, right? Where it used to be at internationals, no question was asked twice. Right. Um, which then that because the rulebook states basically nothing about how quiz sets should be generated, right? Right. Um, it, it just has the minimums and the maximums, and that's about it. I think not about it. That's it. Um, so because that rule existed for internationals where no question would be asked twice, it kind of, now that it's a known, a certainty, it created um, incentive to know all the questions that have been asked. Um, and then there was a desire, actually, we, we want to remove that. And so I think it was in prelims, questions will only be asked once, um, but could be re-asked um, after. Um, but it's still, because the, the algorithm is not known, it could be that no change was made to the algorithm, right? Um, and so it could be that there exists the exact same incentive um, it's, it's just because of the uncertainty, maybe it's less of incentive. It's kind of funny how that works. Right. Right. Well, any last parting thoughts on this before we move on? I don't think so. I mean, we hit why we think people should care and then, um, hit Luke's, um, recommendations, which we think were great. Um, do we have any, any more follow-ups to either what he said or to other people that might want to, um, provide their, their thoughts? I don't have anything in particular other than to say, Luke, thank you very much for your email. And dude, you totally need to show up to Great West um, because I'd love to shake your hand. I love this email. So thank you. Um, but a couple of parting things before we exit here. I want to reference anybody who follows us or chat with chats with us on the Inside Quizzing Slack channel. Uh, Alex actually posted a um, what was it yesterday? She posted a link to an early Bible quizzing footage reel video thing 
uh, taken in 1959, uh, and it's extraordinary. Um, I, I just, I can't underscore how extraordinary it is. Uh, and uh, Jeremy replied and said, you know, it's great that we have uh, good documentation for quizzing history. It's actually a must uh, going forward. And I, I agree with them. I think documenting the history of quizzing, where we have come from, not just in the last five or 10 years, but the last 60, 60 years, 80 years. I can't do math in my head. Uh, 70 years, last 60, 70 years of Bible quizzing. I think it's really good to try our best to capture as much of that history as we can because it does fade. And I think too often we evaluate, we nerd out on rules changes in the microcosm that is the last two to five years of quizzing. And we fail to remember what happened 20 years ago, 40 years ago, 60 years ago. Uh, because of course, you know, for most of us, we weren't there and, um, there's, there's a lot of, of learning. There's a lot of wisdom that was wrought over those ages that I think we could avail ourselves from if we, you know, study history, you know, study history in general and study quizzing history in particular. Uh, then the second thing, uh, I wanted to lever- let everybody in P&W know that the Madras uh, quiz meet is coming up. It's a little bit less than two weeks away, and it's going to be in Madras. It's our first district meet of the season, of the regular season. And the draw and schedule and roster for that meet is now posted on the pnwquizzing.org website. Uh, if anybody is interested in checking that out prior to the meet. Uh, Scott, any other parting thoughts? I got nothing else. All right. Is that I'm looking? Well, actually, I'm looking at that link right now. Is is there? I, I'm only seeing an MP3. Is there a video, or is it just an audio? Maybe it is only an audio. I thought there was a video in there as well, but um, there's uh, from 1959. Can you can you believe it? It's um, That's it's pretty awesome. Wild. We also need to capture. This is on YouTube somewhere, but there's a there's a there's a the YouTube video of quizzers very modern like like within the last i don't know 10 years or so maybe even less than that in jordan i think it was in jordan uh doing bible quizzing and um obviously they're speaking a language that is not english so you know i i have no idea what they're saying but the pattern of quizzing is remarkably similar to how we do quizzing and so it was just really I don't know. It's just really cool to watch them and be like, oh, okay, that person's the quiz master. That's the answer judge. That person just got that question correct. Okay, now that that person's challenging. Okay, you know, and you it it's it flows in exactly the way or very, very similar to a way that we would run our quizzes. And it's just fascinating to watch them do this. I think they take more time. They actually take a lot more time sort of debating and adjudicating rulings than we do. Uh, but other than that, the flow of the of the quiz is uh, remarkable, remarkably similar to what we do. Yep. You, you could just have the audio and you would know what was happening. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. But having the video is even better because you can you, you could see their faces and you're like, oh, they're Bible. They're their Bible quizzers just like us. You know, <laughs> like it's right. it's remarkably similar. All right. Well, and on that bombshell, we'll close things up. Remember, please, we love getting your emails. Uh, please email us like Luke did uh, brilliant, brilliantly. Uh, email us at iq at cbqz.org. You can follow us on Twitter. Our account is at Inside Quizzing. And you can chat with us in kind of almost near real time on the Inside Quizzing channel on Slack. And with that, I will say thank you all for listening. And thank you, Scott. Thank you, Griffin. And thank you to all of our listeners.